Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the history and evolution of gambling and sport betting. Beginning with the discussion of gambling in ancient societies, we will then move to discuss how gambling evolved throughout time in the United States, paying particular attention to major laws that govern betting and the societal view of it, and then ending with a breakdown of the Bradley Act and the Supreme Court decision that overturned it. So, if you ever wondered how gambling ties into the birth of the United States, or Why, despite government regulations throughout time, the popularity of gambling has remained steadfast, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. The Supreme Court decision in Murphy v. National Collegiate Athletic Association issued on May 14, 2018, found the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, or Bradley Act of 1992, to be in violation of the Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, thus opening the way for states outside of Nevada, Oregon, Delaware, and Montana to legalize sport gambling. According to the American Gaming Association, or AGA, a little over one year after the ruling, 10 states have now made sport gambling legal, with another 30 states consider legalizing it in 2019 alone. Today, I want to dive into sports gambling and examine its history and evolution to try to better understand why the Bradley Act was passed in the first place, and why so many states have been so quick to make sport gambling legal so soon after it was overturned. In exploring these topics, we will trace gambling back to its roots and end with exploring what impact it now is having on today's American economy. But before we dive into that, we need to begin by setting the table and making sure we all know and understand what gambling is in the first place and where it came from. So let's begin with the definition. The word gambling comes from the Middle English word gammon, which means to amuse oneself. And that's where we get the origins for what gambling is. Now, the dictionary defines gambling as the activity or practice of playing at a game of chance for money or other stakes, or the act or practice of risking the loss of something important by taking a chance or acting reckless. And while this definition does well to get the conversation started, it doesn't really speak to all of gambling's characteristics. For that, we need to turn to the Rothschild Committee Report of 1978. This report was commissioned by the government of the United Kingdom to investigate the existing law and practices thereunder relating to betting, gaming, lotteries, and prize competitions. So in the 1978 report, Lord Rothschild noted, quote, Gambling consists of an agreement between parties with respect to an unascertained outcome that, depending on the outcome, there is a redistribution of advantage, usually but not always monetarily, among the parties. Mudding, in his book on the history of gaming, 
in Britain and the United States further defied gambling by saying, quote, there may or may not be third parties, pool promoters, lottery organizers, or bookmakers involved, or the gambling may be direct, as in a card game. The competition may or may not involve skill to various degrees or be wholly dependent on chance. Taking Mudding and Rothschild's definition then, we can look at any activity that involves two or more individuals or actors engaging in a competition that requires both entities involved putting up money or something of value, where the winner of the competition, which might be based on skill or a matter of luck, gets the money back that they put in plus at least a portion of the money that the other actor or other individual put up. Examples of this might include such activities that involve no skill, such as lotteries, bingos, or casinos games like slots or roulette, or games that involve a lot of skill, such as gambling games like poker and blackjack, or betting on horses, or really important for our conversation today, betting on sports. Before we get to discussions of gambling on sports, though, we need to trace back gambling to its roots. And historically speaking, gambling is as old as civilization itself, as John Ashton noted in his book The History of Gambling in England, quote, Of the universality of gambling, there is no doubt, and it seems to be inherent in human nature. We can understand its being introduced from one nation to another, but unless it developed naturally, how can we account for aboriginals like the natives of New England who had never had intercourse with foreign folks, but whom Governor Wilson described as being advanced gamblers? Proof of gambling in ancient societies dates back far before the American aboriginals as the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, and Chinese all engaged in numerous forms of gambling. Going back as far in history as we can to around 3000 BC, scholars have found definitive proof of gambling amongst the Egyptians, pointing to paintings of people engaging in games of chance in the tombs and artifacts found alongside the mummified remains of royalty that suggest the Egyptian people enjoyed not only playing games, but wagering on the outcomes. A scholar named Ashton points to games like Tau, also known as Game of Robbers, the Game of Bulls, Droughts, and Ashtagal, the earliest known form of dice, to demonstrate the Egyptians' propensity for playing games. He further described them playing the game Atep, which involved two players standing back-to-back and guessing the number of fingers the opponent was holding up, with a third person acting as a referee while gamblers bet on the outcomes. History further shows the Egyptians partook in such activities as dog racing, and that they even mounted horses and raced them in the first documented form of horse racing. Early Egyptian religious stories spoke of the importance of gambling to their culture as well, as we can see in the story of Isis and Osiris. Outside the Egyptians, definitive evidence has also been found of gambling in ancient Greece and Roman empires, specifically around their mega events like the Olympic Games and the contests held in Circus Maximus. Diving into the Circus Maximus even more, this was the largest racetrack in Rome where they would hold chariot races in front of crowds of over 250,000 people at a time. These races were lively events and included, amongst other things, thousands of people who bet on the outcome of the race. 
One scholar went as far to describe the people attending as, quote, already being in a fury of anxiety about their bets as they approached the stadiums, end quote. In addition to betting on the outcomes of these mega events, an excavation of Via Volturno in 1876 uncovered more signs of gambling in ancient Rome as a tavern was discovered with the inscription that told all passerbyers that good food could be found inside and that, quote, the gaming tables were always open to gamblers, end quote. The tables reference, which were also found by archaeologists, point to games like dice throwing, backgammon, and nuts and mora as just a few examples of the many gambling games that the people of ancient Rome played. In fact, one scholar went as far to say that the evidence shows that gambling was considered an important part of the Roman culture and social life. Now, in addition to gambling in Greece, Rome, and Egypt, individuals in India and China also play games of skill and games of chance that involve betting on the outcomes. According to a historian named Price, early Indian hymns, just like those in Egypt culture, spoke of gambling on chariot races and dice, and they spoke about gambling and betting with cattle. Quote, one of the few secular poems in the Rig Veda is a lament of a gambler who is unable to tear himself away from dicing in lots, and although he is aware of the ruin he is bringing himself and his family, he cannot stop. The tale is of King Nala, who could not stop gambling and lost his kingdom with loaded dice and then won it back again with fair dice, end quote. In addition to just playing dice, cockfighting was also a popular source of gambling around this time in 2000 BC in China. At that same time, people were also gambling on popular casino games like Kino and other card games. And in fact, it is believed that cards were originally invented in China during the Tang Dynasty, which is around 618 to 907 AD. Though these cards were different than the 52-card deck that we're used to now, they serve as the origins for the common day playing cards, which are believed to have been brought to Europe via Egypt in the Maluk period, which is around 1250 to 1517 AD. All of this points to a history of our ancient societies engaging in gambling to massive scales. Not only was this done amongst the elite of the time, but it also trickled all the way down to the commoners. As we start to move forward throughout history, gambling is just as prevalent. During approximately the same time that playing cards were introduced in Europe, gambling on dice games continued to grow in popularity and in fact, by many accounts, was the most popular form of gambling in the 13th and 14th century in Europe. In addition to dice, horse racing continued to grow in popularity across Europe to the point where the King of England, Henry II, organized weekly horse races in 1174. In fact, gambling on the horse races became so pervasive that in 1190, an edict was issued by Richard I of England and Philip of France that, quote, prohibits any person in the army beneath the degree of knight from playing at any sort of game for money. Knights and clergymen might play for money, but none of them were permitted to lose more than 20 shillings in one whole day and night under a penalty of 100 shillings to be paid to the archbishop in the army, end quote. This 
really marked one of the first examples that we see in the history books where the government started to get involved in regulating gambling behavior. Like other sports and recreational activities that were regulated at this time, the governments and the leaders during this period were worried that gambling was maybe a loathsome activity that could distract individuals from work or their worship of God. Now, interestingly, just like we see with ancient sports, it didn't mean that we got rid of it altogether. It just meant that we outlawed it for those individuals who were poor while still allowing those individuals who are wealthy or affluential to engage in it. Thus, we allow the knights to do it. Many even went as far during this time as saying that gambling was a sin. And they equated it to sinning against the church. And they said that it should be banned outright. In this, they wanted to regulate it even more to stop certain people, those lower class individuals, from engaging. Now, this is something that we will continue to see with gambling, where gambling starts to become more popular within a society, and then we see the government or those leaders of the time step in and try to regulate it away from a certain class of individuals. But getting back to the history, while gambling remained an activity outlawed and or heavily regulated within the lower class and amongst the commoners throughout Europe during the 14th and 15th century, as we enter into the 16th century, specifically in Italy, things began to change. As a historian named Walker described, quote, During the 16th century, a more positive mythology developed in which gambling became an examination in the noble virtues of magnanimity and self-control, end quote. As more time passed, backroom gambling dens were transformed into organized fashionable clubs often run professionally, and as gambling assumed greater importance for nobles, so it became more expressive for them. And by the 17th and 18th century, gambling was viewed as a primary attraction for visitors to Italy and more specifically to Venice. In fact, the first ever casino was developed in Venice during this time in 1638, and the first lottery was put into place in Florence in 1530. So we have this back and forth view of gambling that's occurring. While it's first viewed as this loathsome activity and something that is outlawed or something that should be heavily regulated specifically amongst the lower class, we have this other group of people that is celebrating gambling as a form of expression amongst the nobles, which actually led to the industry of gambling growing not just in Italy in the 17th and 18th centuries, but across Europe as more and more people began to gamble, even despite the government regulations that were in place. And oftentimes, they were gambling even in spite of some of the negative views that society held. According to Encyclopedia.com, in the 16th and 17th centuries, people throughout Europe enjoyed betting on cockfighting, wrestling, and foot races. In the 18th century, horse racing and boxing rose to prominence as a spectator sport on which the public enjoyed gambling. The 19th and 20th centuries brought a new emphasis on team sports, and Europeans began risking their wages on rugby, soccer, and cricket games, end quote. And as previously mentioned, when the European colonists crossed the Atlantic in the 15th and 16th centuries, they found the natives, like those individuals in Europe and Asia before them, also engaged in various forms of gambling. Just like the societies throughout history, the Native Americans were found to fashion dice and play numerous games that involved betting or wagering on the outcome. 
Stuart Collin, who's a scholar, further noted that the native populations in North America bet on the outcome of athletic contests as well, like foot races and ball games. Not to be outdone, the Europeans who came across the ocean brought with them their own gambling practices. For example, in 1620, 20 horses were shipped from England to the colony of Virginia, so horse races with private wagering could take place. Now, all of this helped spark the growth of horse race popularity in the colonies and brought about the commercial beginnings of the horse racing industry in 1665 with the building of a permanent racetrack in New York. And since then, gambling has been a central part of the American culture. In addition to just bringing the horse races, Europeans also brought with them to America the lottery system, with the colonists used to help raise money to pay for civic projects like the building of universities and schools. As Ronald Lynchlack noted, 200 years ago, government-sanctioned lotteries were common throughout America. Lacking a strong central government and burdened with a weak tax base, early Americans viewed lotteries as a legitimate vehicle for raising revenue. Lottery proceeds were used to build cities, establish universities, and even help to finance the Revolutionary War. They were gradually abandoned throughout the 1800s, though, as the governments developed better forms of taxation. Lottery fraud became a concern as well, and social problems stemming from excessive gambling developed. In 1893, the Librarian of Congress wrote of, quote, a general public conviction that lotteries are to be regarded in direct proportion to their extension as among the most dangerous and prolific sources of human misery, end quote. As a result of these growing concerns, lotteries were banned in the United States from the late 1800s until 1964. Many states even went a step further and inserted amendments into their state constitutions to ban all forms of gambling as they, like the European ancestors before them, started to see gambling as a sinful activity that could be harmful to citizens. New York led the way in this as they adopted an amendment banning gambling in 1821 and soon many other states followed suit. It's important to note that lotteries weren't the only source of trepidation among the general public when it came to gambling during this time. While lotteries were the forefront, gaming rooms and small casinos were also starting to take shape, which were causing a lot of concern amongst the general public. These gaming rooms specifically started slowly during this era, following the examples set in Venice in the 16th and 17th century. They began with these small taverns or gaming houses. And the gaming rooms were oftentimes set up in the back and they had tables where a gambler could come in and play cards or play dice against other individuals. Now, as the population began to grow across the country, so too did some of the popularity of these houses. And this led to building of larger and larger houses for gambling. And before we knew it, cities across the United States were filled with major casinos. More specifically, during this time period of the 1800s, we saw places in New York, Washington, New Orleans, Cincinnati, Chicago, and San Francisco all become gambling hotbeds. The growth in availability of gambling brought by the increase in these gambling houses also brought a lot more concern that were echoed from some of those things we heard from the Librarian of Congress back in 1893. 
In his book, Sucker's Progress, an informal history of gambling in America, the author Asbury points this out by saying, quote, By the early 1830s, the most startling rumors were certain everywhere in the vast territories. The gamblers were rioting in New Orleans, stealing children and forcing them into brothels. They were agents of the northern abolitionists. They burned Mobile. They had pillaged Natez, driven all but their own kind out of Vicksburg, and massacred the passages of a dozen steamboats. The ignorant attributed to the power of the gamblers such acts of gods as floods, tornadoes, cyclones, and even the great earthquake which rocked the Mississippi Valley in 1811. End quote. As you can see, these rumors spurned fear amongst the general population and led to more and more states passing laws to ban gambling to avoid having these types of acts brought upon their own people. But that didn't stop all forms of gambling, because in addition to just card games and dice games and gambling on horse races during the late 1800s and the early part of the 1900s, people also started to bet more and more on other types of sporting activities. Of course, horse racing, as we pointed out, was very popular, but joining the ranks in America was the love of wagering on boxing, and maybe even more important for the evolution of gambling the love of betting on baseball. In fact, gambling on baseball can be dated all the way back to 1877 when it was discovered that the Louisville Grays were throwing games. Newspapers of this era often reported on players and managers even betting on their own games, as the Washington Post printed in 1894 about Cap Anson, who is now a Hall of Famer, saying, quote, Uncle Anson has already started making wagers on the position the Chicago Colts will have in the race for the National League pennant next year. He put up $100 a few days ago that his team would finish higher up in the race than the Pittsburgh Pirates, end quote. These news and other reports demonstrated that while some were worried about gambling, betting, and lotteries, and concerned about them being a source of misery and despair for mass groups of people, many others in the public at large still viewed gambling as little less than a form of entertainment. These positive views of gambling, though, really started to change in 1919 with the Chicago White Sox-Cincinnati Reds World Series. As a little bit of background, before the World Series began, a gambler named Joseph Sports Sullivan got together with a White Sox first baseman, a guy named Arnold Chick Gandil, and discussed the possibility of throwing the championship, or in other words, losing the championship on purpose to the Cincinnati Reds. Chick went on to recruit multiple players, which there's some dispute about how many players were actually involved in throwing the games and which just had knowledge of the games. But it's widely held that at least five players were involved in fixing the games and at least two other players had knowledge of what was happening, though it's not known whether they participated or not. Now, in exchange for losing the series, the gamblers agreed to play the participating players around $100,000, which might not seem like much money, but if we look at how much $100,000 in 1990 is today, that comes out to roughly $1.5 million in today's money. So the White Sox ended up losing the series 5-3. to three. Back then, they played 9-game series and not 7-game series. But after the series, there were rumors that the players had actually thrown the games and lost on purpose. This led to one sports writer writing an article for the New York Evening World titled, quote, Is 
big league baseball being run by the gamblers with players in on the deal, end quote. However, as history shows, there were some other articles like this at the time, but really no one cared. And it kind of slid by until, that is, August 31st, 1920, when evidence surfaced that gamblers had rid another game between the Cubs and the Phillies, this time just a regular season game. But as that evidence started to amount, more people started to come forward, including other gamblers, to report their role in fixing the 1919 World Series. And all of a sudden, this house of cards that was built started to crumble. And eight players who were believed to be involved with fixing the World Series were indicted on nine counts of conspiracy. It's interesting to see what might have happened with the trial as they all go to trial, but somehow some of the papers that were presented to the grand jury that led to the charges, which allegedly had confessions on them, miraculously disappeared. And once those papers disappeared, the prosecutor's case kind of went up in smoke. And so the players were all let off without serving any jail time. That wasn't the end of it for those players, though, as a result of this scandal and this trial and the high publicity that it brought, baseball instituted a number of monumentous changes, the most notable of which was that they hired an individual to serve as a commissioner to oversee and regulate Major League Baseball. The individual they brought in was a former judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who soon after the eight players were found not guilty, banned all eight players from the game for life. As Landis said, quote, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player that throws a ball game, no player that entertains proposals or promises to throw a ball game, no player that sits in a conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing games are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever play professional baseball, end quote. This sentiment of Landis and the feelings that he had about the influence of gamblers and betting on baseball soon took hold across all American sports. And a fundamental rule was put into place that there should be no gambling on professional sport events by professional athletes. While there are no federal laws that existed at this time that were banning sport gambling, many states after this 1919 World Series started to add more constitutional amendments, just like New York had done in 1821. However, still some states fought against this. States like Nevada, which instead of making gambling illegal, in 1931, they passed laws that made gambling and sports wagering legal within their state. The federal government stayed out of sport gambling until 1951 when they finally imposed a 10% tax on Nevada's legal sports books. And they took it a step further in 1961 when they passed the Federal Wire Act, which made it illegal to place bets or share information about bets across state lines. This law didn't have much effect though because it didn't make it illegal for me to place a bet within the state I was residing. It just made it illegal for me to call Nevada and place a bet with them over the phone. Thus, states like Nevada and New Jersey were able to still set up casinos and still allow sport gambling. 
And they actually built their casinos even bigger at this time. And they started to look at that historical example of Venice more and more to use casinos as a way to attract people to come to their cities or come to their states to engage in a form of recreation and make money at the same time. Casinos on Indian reservations began popping up around this time as well, and they were soon followed by riverboat casinos across the country. The interesting thing is, while sports were fighting hard against the negative effects of fixing matches, and casinos were fighting hard the negative public sentiment that was often reported in the papers, as more and more time passed and more casinos opened across the country, more and more people's opinion changed from a negative view of gambling to a more positive one, or at least one that was really indifferent. In 1970, this can be seen in a commission that was created by the United States Congress to study Americans' attitude towards gambling. And the report found that 80% of Americans approved of gambling and that 67% engaged in at least some form of gambling activities over the course of a year. Based off these findings, Congress concluded that they really should leave the matter of gambling and sport betting up to the states, and they should not try to federally regulate it. What they found was that the reports of the negative view of gambling was really something that was more media-created than was actual fact. But gambling wasn't all hunky-dory at this time either. People were engaging it to a large extent, as the commission found, to the point where in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association actually recognized pathological gambling as a mental disorder and defined it as the chronic and progressive failure to resist impulses to gamble. To help deal with this newly classified disorder, states oftentimes set up programs to help addicted gamblers. Thus, as most people across the country supported casinos and didn't have major issues with gambling, there were still those out there that felt that gambling was a corruptive activity that pulled at the moral fabric of the country. One area where this was especially believed was in sports betting, as outside of horse racing, betting on sporting events still remained largely illegal, while casino games remained legal. The reason why the general public was seemingly okay with gambling at casinos and not on sporting events? Well, people were concerned that the athletes would be tempted by corrupt gamblers and try to fix games just like happened in the 1919 World Series. And their fears were not found wanting as major sport shaving or game fixing scandals were unearthed in 1961 with North Carolina and North Carolina State's men's basketball teams. There's another one in 1978 and in 1985 with Boston College and Tulane's basketball teams. And then you had the whole Pete Rose betting scandal where he bet on baseball while he was an active player and an active manager that led to him being banned from the sport in 1989. The overarching worry about the corruption of sports, which was there and seen in these scandals, finally led to the federal government passing the previously mentioned Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, or the Bradley Act, in 1992. The law didn't ban sports betting, it's important to point that out, but rather it made it illegal for new states to sponsor it. So according to the law... States, after the passage of the law, had one year to choose whether or not that they would allow sport betting. Those that chose to allow it would be grandfathered in and would be allowed to have individuals come to their state and bet on sports. 
But those who did not choose to vote to allow sport gambling could not go forward and have it in the future. More specifically, the law states, quote, it shall be unlawful for a government entity to sponsor, operate, advertise, promote, license, or authorize by law or compact, or a person to sponsor, operate, advertise, or to promote pursuant to the law or compact of a government entity, a lottery, sweepstakes, or other betting, gambling, or wagering schemes based directly or indirectly on one or more competitive games in which amateur or professional athletes participate or are intended to participate or on one or more performance of such athletes in such games, end quote. In total, four states were grandfathered in. Nevada allowed all forms of sports betting or sports pools. And then you had Oregon, Delaware, and Montana that had what we call legal sports lotteries, which didn't allow for full betting on sports, but allowed for some forms of betting on sports. That brings us all the way up to present day in 2018, when the state of New Jersey and their governor, Chris Christie, brought a lawsuit against the NCAA challenging the constitutionality of the Bradley Act. Now, to try to simplify this as much as possible, the Supreme Court ruled in a 72 decision that the Bradley Act was in violation of the 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And more specifically, the justices said that the act violated the anti-commandering doctrine, which states that the federal government cannot require states or state officials to adopt or enforce a federal law. So think of it this way. The act, which was a federal law, was put in place to dictate what the states could do when it came to gambling. The law said they could not repeal past laws they had made to ban gambling. So the federal government was forbidding states from appealing one of their own laws, which violates the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, which reserves this type of power to repeal state laws for the states. In other words, the federal government cannot tell a state if they can appeal their own laws. And that's what the Supreme Court found, and that is why they ended up overturning the Bradley Act and ruling it unconstitutional. So the Bradley Act was ruled unconstitutional. It's white from the books. But this didn't mean that gambling was just immediately legal throughout the United States and that I could go anywhere I wanted and bet on a sporting contest. Remember, what the Supreme Court said was just that the federal government couldn't regulate it and that in trying to do so, they were in fact violating the Constitution. It didn't say that gambling on sports was all of a sudden legal. It left it to the individual states to now make the determination as to whether they wanted to make it legal within their boundaries or not. For the case that was filed, the state of of New Jersey wanted to make it legal, and so they moved pretty quick to make it legal, and a few other states followed suit. So that brings us up to the present day. And I just want to end this podcast by just taking a quick look at where the gambling industry is now. As of 2019, all but five states in America have at least one casino in them. The exceptions are Alaska, Tennessee, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. Now, 
all states aren't created equal when it comes to casinos. Some of them have massive casinos like we see in New Jersey or like we see in Nevada or like we see in New Orleans. Others have smaller casinos that might sit on Native American tribal land or they might even be on riverboats or off the shore. But 45 of the states do have at least some form of casino-type gambling. As of 2019, 10 states have legalized sports betting, and another 8 states have laws that have been passed and are just waiting to take effect. As a result of all of this gambling that's occurring within these casinos and now within these sports books, the gambling industry in 2018 generated $40.28 billion, which generated over $10 billion of revenue for states through their taxes on gambling. Now, of that $40 billion, $430 million was actually generated from just sports gambling alone. According to the American Gaming Association, which we mentioned at the top of this podcast, the casino industry in and of itself employs almost 2 million people within the United States and is continuing to grow as more and more states look to add more sports wagering and as they look to add more casinos. So while the size of the gambling industry continues to grow and we continue to employ millions of people within it and generate billions of dollars in revenue through taxes, we need to understand and keep in mind this historical development that has taken place over time. Not only is it important for us to see how things have changed and continue to evolve to where we've led today, but it's important for us to track the history to understand the perceptions of what was happening at the time. Because while gambling gets a very negative connotation in a lot of the media and a lot of the discussions, what we have found throughout history is that it's really been a part of our culture. The problem becomes when people go beyond just engaging in it for a form of entertainment and start to engage in it as a form of an addictive behavior, or they start to wager or bet more than they can stand to lose. Well, we've learned today that the government has historically been pretty reminiscent about getting over-involved in regulating gambling, we should keep in mind that there is a disease out there that involves individuals not being able to control their habitual gambling. History also teaches us that gambling swings on a pendulum. While sometimes we go very far in regulating gambling, other times we remove all regulations and it swings the other way. We're in a period of time right now where we've removed most of the regulations that are in place. So we need to be careful that it doesn't swing too far in one direction and cause some of those social ill wills that previous history has pointed to. If you have any questions about the history and evolution of gambling or sport betting, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the sport professor. Follow us and stay up to date with our stories and get behind the scenes posts and information about what's next within our podcast feed. Until next time though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the sport professor podcast. <laughs>